0: A Spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online
1: and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.
0: Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall, at the Spectator offices in London. So I thought freedom of speech was a problem in the music industry when last year I was forced to apologise and take a leave of absence from my band Mumford & Sons before deciding to quit because I read a book about far-left extremism in the United States. Well, it turns out there's something more perilous than reading a book, that's writing a book. And this month, on the 12th of August, Sir Salman Rushdie was attacked in upstate New York in Shutokwa by a man acting on a fatwa issued in 1989 by the Ayatollah Khomeini. The Satanic Verses, which Salman Rushdie published in 1988, Turned Salman into, I guess, the lightning rod of the fault line between what Samuel Huntington used to call, or called rather, the clash of civilizations. So, today to speak with me about Sir Salman Rushdie, the satanic verses and what's happened, is Canadian human rights activist Yasmin Mohammed, who in 2019 published her, in my opinion, very brave book, Unveiled How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam. Yasmin, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me here today. It's my pleasure and honor.
0: And it's, it's great to see you again. We met in 2019 just as you were, I think, just published your book. Mm-hmm. I'd love to get into that. But let's talk first about Salman Rushdie and the Satanic Verses. What is so offensive about the Satanic Verses?
1: It doesn't take much to offend extremist Muslims. The most benign criticism is going to have them up in arms. I thought Salman Rushdie's book was actually quite benign. He could have dug a lot deeper. He could have said a lot more. I think it was a... He's a poet. He loves words. He loves the artistry of writing and literature. And I think it was a beautifully written book. And it captures what was for him a personal experience. You know, he he didn't even really go beyond that. He just talked about... You know, you could see so many parallels with his own life and with his writing of this book because, you know, growing up Muslim, you are afraid to have certain thoughts and you are afraid to say certain things because of the reactions that are going to happen. But then once you do do those things, once you do say those things, once you don't follow the rules exactly as they are prescribed to you, as we all must obey, and you sort of secretly take a step out of line and you realize nothing's happened. There is no higher power that is there that is pushing me back and punishing me for eating a ham sandwich or, or whatever the, you know, the edict was. And so for him to, to question if these verses came from a god... To question, you know, the person who was claiming that these verses came from a God, I think is a very basic question that a lot of us have grappled with. And a lot of us have realized that, indeed, no.
0: But, you know, you, you say they're benign, but your implication there and what you've just said is that when, as Rushdie was exploring these topics that were taboo topics within Islam, he must have known then it was not a benign act to discuss them further and really go into the specific, most controversial aspects of Muhammad's life. Now, the satanic verses themselves, the actual satanic verses that they refer to, can you tell us about what that specific part of Islam is? What's the story behind? I'll get this wrong, but Muhammad was supposed to have been told some sort of verses that weren't actually the word of Allah. And this implies his fallibility because he thought it was, and wrote it. What's the story?
1: So the story is that he is an illiterate goat herder, and he is in a cave, and he's fasting, and staying solitarily in a cave. This is the Islamic story, not the story from the satanic verses. This is the story that we're told growing up Muslim. Yes, And he's in this cave, and he starts to hallucinate. Of course, they don't tell us he's hallucinating. They say that he starts to have a vision that an angel comes to him and the angel tells him, read. And he says, I cannot read. I'm illiterate. And then he says, read, read in the, you know, in the name of your God and blah, blah, blah. So essentially this Jibril, this angel is acting as the conduit so instead of God speaking directly to Muhammad, he's, God like tells Gabriel things and then says, hey, go tell Muhammad. And so then he comes down and he tells Muhammad, you know, Allah says X, Y, Z. And so then Muhammad at that point, because he's illiterate, he has to tell a scribe and then the scribe has to write it down. So it's the age-old game of telephone, you know. And what happens when you've got that many different... You know, from Allah to Gabriel to Muhammad to the scribe, you know, it's natural to think, is this truly the word of God? You know, it's been through a lot of hands and things could have been misinterpreted or added or dropped out or changed in, in that chain of events. But so, Muhammad
0: is supposed to be infallible, infallible because he is the prophet. So that's... Is, cannot be the case if he if it is yes. But any thinking so.
1: human being, even a Muslim, you you have those questions. You do think, okay, well, the Quran first of all wasn't even compiled until years after Muhammad's birth. Or sorry, after his death, and so this is part of the what's happening now with reform Muslims. These are the questions that they're bringing up. Is you know how. How sure can we be that this book is truly the word of God? And they're using that to allow them to interpret some of the things that are written in there, you know, to allow it to be a little bit more malleable than, than in the past. Well,
0: the problem I've always put to reformisms when I've met them is that through the Quran, it says over and over again, you must take this word literally yeah. for its word. So that's a real hurdle there Mm -hmm. for reform muslims to get over is it a hurdle that can be conquered can be can be jumped
1: (laughs) you're absolutely correct and i entirely agree with you and i don't know what the answer is but i'm not going to bother expending my energy trying to overcome that hurdle i'd rather just walk away from the whole thing but some people believe that it's worth their time and energy to try and overcome that hurdle. And to those people, I say all the power to you. Mm. You know, I completely support you because those are people that are trying to bring Islam into this century. And so of course, I'm going to support them in that Mm -hmm. versus the people that are loving to keep Islam back the way it was when the way their prophet practiced it, which is, Mm -hmm. of course, unacceptable.
0: So having been raised a Muslim, I was hoping you might enlighten me as to Islamic blasphemy laws. Mm. And it seems to me that that is the, the problem at the root here. I mean, I think it seems obvious that the answer to this question is yes, but does Islam have a free speech
1: issue? <laughs> yes, they absolutely do. There's no concept of free speech. It's not. Um... So when you say blasphemy laws, that's one thing when you talk about Sharia or Islamic law, or even like the laws of the country. So yes, there, there are laws of countries that will punish people, throw them in prison, even execute them for speaking ill of the Prophet or speaking any kind of criticism about the religion. That's one problem. But then there's also just your average Muslim citizen, like what happened with Salman Rajdi and in this fatwa. So the state of Iran wants to execute him, but what do they do? They send out a fatwa that says any believing Muslim willing to do this will be, you know, heralded and celebrated and, and it will be whatever, like that this will be like the greatest act you can do with your life. Hmm.
0: So and this is powerful because at the time of the initial fatwa, I think the Japanese trying Because it wasn't just for Salman Rushdie that the fatwa went out. It was anyone associated with the publishing of the book. So the Japanese translator was, I think, murdered. There was a fire in Turkey, which killed several people attempting to kill the Turkish translator. I might be getting some of these details.
1: But many people were killed and So what are
0: the the Islamic blasphemy laws? Where is that rooted? In the Quran?
1: So yes, you're not allowed to criticize the prophet. You're not allowed to criticize the religion. And if you do, you are to be executed. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, that can be state sanctioned execution, or that can just be vigilante justice by people who are encouraged to do this, because as true believers, you have to defend the religion Mm -hmm. from criticism. And then the third type of person who does that is the one who uses the term Islamophobia to quiet criticism. Mm. So it's really all on a spectrum. We're going to state sanctioned execution, vigilante Justice, which I could give you so many examples of that kind of thing happening. Mm. Just very briefly, of Jeet Roy, who is a, a writer in in Bangladesh. He was at a book fair with his wife, and he was hacked to death with machetes just in the streets. His wife is still missing fingers from the machetes when she was trying to protect her husband. That was like 2016, I think.
0: And that's another novelist.
1: Yes, ah. yeah. You know, and a young student in Pakistan, he was, it was the most benign thing again. He talked about like, it was about Adam and Eve. And so are we all children of incest or something like that? And the fact that he would ask this question in his university classroom hmm. meant that when he got back to his dorm that day, there was a crowd of people waiting for him and they beat him to death. Hmm. When his mother went to identify his body, she said, even kissing his hand even his pinky finger bones were broken. Like every single bone in his body was broken because he dared to ask questions about this religion that should never be criticized. Mm. So yeah, it's absolute zero tolerance. You saw this with Charlie Abdo You saw this with Fleming Rose, the cartoonist from... Denmark, you, you know, you see this over and over and over and over again.
0: We saw actually in Britain earlier this year, there's a Shia made film called The, yes. the Lady of Heaven about Fatima, the daughter of Mohammed. And Cineworld, I believe, and other cinemas decided to kowtow to mm-hmm. protesters in not just London, but I think Bradford and a couple other spots and remove the film from being Shown And what was peculiar about that was that it, was, it seemed to be within Islam between Shia and Sunni. So at first glance, I thought, oh, well, the Shia here are taking the more free speech route, and the Sunni sect were against them. But actually, it turned out to be more complicated because the Iran- Iranian government had also forbidden the, the film. And so there seems to be a, a war within Islam on, on free speech going on.
1: Yes. Well, that's the problem is like, will the real Islam please stand up? (laughs) Right? Everything is blasphemy because according to somebody's opinion, it's going to be blasphemous. Hmm. So it is so dangerous to speak about the religion, any kind of literature, art, movies, anything, because you never know who you're going to offend. Hmm. And... What was interesting about that movie that you mentioned there is that even Muslims can't criticize their own religion. They can't even question their own religion, or they can't even offer a perspective if other Muslims disagree with them. They will also silence them. And this happens all the time. There's Ahmadi Muslims to the point that to get a Pakistani passport, you have to sign... That you don't believe that Ahmadi Muslims are actual Muslims, like, mm. like why, <laughs> why why do you need that What's in order? An Ahmadi it's just another flavor of Muslim, but the Sunnis want to sort of have a monopoly on what they believe to be true Islam, and so they don't want any other sects or reformers or any other variations Hmm. and so that's the kind of islam that i grew up in which is the you know the what now people are calling salafi or wahhabi so it's back to basics Hmm. back to the way the prophet lived fundamentalist fundamentalist the most pure example would be isis Mm -hmm. they followed the steps of what their prophet did the leader of isis had a phd in islamic studies and he was you know very very precise in making sure that they followed the rules of their religion the way he saw it. The difficult
0: thing that jumps out from what you're saying is that actually, or rather, I'm finding it hard to discern radical Islam from Islam Islam in what you're implying here. And and there's a common, when it comes to the argument, there's, it's often said, oh, you know, most liberal Muslims or most Muslims don't represent this way of thought, this way of thinking. But the sort of implication... I think here is that actually true Muslims do have this, but not for me to say, but do you think that's...
1: Yeah, I think the best way to sort of illustrate this is with a parallel with the Old Testament. So there is no New Testament in Islam. So when you look at the Old Testament and the way that it asks Christians to live and act and be, it's pretty harsh. And you're going to have a difficult time finding... Christian people that actually follow the Old Testament by the letter. And you're also not going to be able to find any countries that have laws from the Old Testament in their countries.
0: Well, except that Israel, the Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible. Right, yes.
1: Yeah, they like to think of themselves as a democracy. But yes, so this is, I believe in secularism. I think that there should be a complete separation of church and state entirely. But what I'm trying to express is that even though there is scriptural evidence for acting a certain way or for being a certain way in the Old Testament, most Christians do not follow it and do not live that way. That is a truth because they're following the New Testament. But what happens with Islam is the Quran is like the Old Testament. That is the book that Muslims follow. So We kind of have to make a differentiation between Islam the religion and Muslims the people because the religion demands this the religion says uh for example that you know if you if you steal to cut off your right hand and your left foot or whatever their barbaric rules are but that doesn't mean that most Muslims are actually following those specific rules so what you're saying is, is true. However, most Muslims do know that that's what the religion demands and that when there is an Islamic state and that we should be, they should be trying and hoping for an Islamic state that will follow the rules of Islam. So even though they don't actively engage in those things, they know that that's the correct thing that should be done. And if they're not doing it, they should be striving towards doing it as soon as they can mm-hmm.
0: i'd like to challenge you on some of the what you said yeah. about the the christian bible there but that's perhaps for another well I have, another you know time. what you're probably
1: 100 percent correct because <laughs> i shouldn't even i've grew up muslim and i'm very familiar with that religion yeah. and i'm trying my best to try and create parallels for people so that they can understand this context but in the same way that i'm fully you know versed in islam Other people are fully versed in their own religions Mm -hmm. and they're not fully versed in Islam. And so I guess we're both like kind of trying to reach out to each other and and create those parallels as much as we can so that we can understand each other. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to do when this is your experience and this is your understanding and yours is completely different. Mm -hmm. And so we have to try and find a, you know, like I'm I'm not familiar with Christianity. I'm not familiar with the Bible. I'm not familiar with, you know, other than just what I would know mainstream no,
0: for another time but uh <laughs> you published your book as i said already in 2019 unveiled half of it in my memory is correct it's autobiographical about yep. how you escaped i hope you don't mind me using that language no not at all a, a forced marriage to a high-ranking member of al-qaeda mm-hmm. for people who haven't read the book or who might be interested in reading the book what what can you tell us about that story i appreciate it. it's very personal so Perhaps listeners should just go and buy the book, but yeah. what can you tell us
1: so, like I mentioned, I grew up in a in a very i guess what would these days be considered fundamentalist or extremist household you know at the time, I just thought I was a regular Muslim these were the all the Muslims around me were were the same. I was put in, in Canada in Canada, mm-hmm. yes, I was put in hijab at nine years old because that's the age I went to Islamic schools and You know, education was never valued. I knew that my whole purpose in this world was to marry young and make more babies, make more Muslims, to grow the ummah, to grow the community of Muslims, and, you know, to be a good wife and to learn how to obey and and all that stuff. But I was never really good at being subservient and conforming. I was always questioning and pushing And so that was something that my mother and her husband tried to beat out of me. And they almost succeeded a few times. And eventually what ended up happening was I was left in Egypt. My family all went back to Canada and they left me in Egypt. And my mom figured if I was in a Muslim-majority country in an Islamic environment that there was very little trouble that I could get into. Because when I talk about me being problematic. I mean that I was attracted to things like freedom, liberalism, <laughs> feminism, right? Like these were concepts that I was interested in and I wanted to have non-muslim friends. I didn't think that they were all these evil people that were out to get me and wanted me dead. And so she figured if she left me there that I would straighten out or something and they tried to force me into a marriage with my cousin and i was able to get out of egypt but i was i was broken very exhausted oh, yeah. at that point i was 18 huh. and i had been fighting with my mother my whole life because when i was about 12 years old i also went to one of my teachers and then he went to social services and got the police involved and the you know i took my mom and her husband to court for the way that they were abusing me and that turned out very badly in my favor when the judge said that you know this is your culture this is your family this is how they choose to to discipline you so he just left me and so there was always this friction
0: like the canadian government there really let you down
1: Absolutely. Is that
0: something, do you think, that's changed in Canada since then?
1: I wish I could say it has, but I just recently read, other than the people that contact me and tell me, their heart-wrenching stories. You know, there was just a case about a a Syrian girl whose nose was broken by her father. She's 14 years old because he found out that she had texted with a boy. And same thing, they refused to take her out of that home and to protect her
0: still in canada
1: still in canada yeah in a different province even so it it doesn't even matter like it's these are provincial courts but that's just the way canada is like it's it's very it's kind of like possessed with this diversity and inclusion and multiculturalism kind of ideas which are just riddled with cultural relativism and moral relativism, and they really cannot see that Muslim girls are human beings similar to other Canadian girls in the country. I mean, they are Canadian girls. They shouldn't be treated any differently. But they really do feel that the, the religion of Islam or the culture of Muslims needs to be protected above the actual human being. And they mm. prove that over and over and over again.
0: This is what uh, the Italian author and journalist Oriana Fallaci. one of her opinions was that liberalism would eventually kill itself because it would tolerate ideologies that would not tolerate liberalism. And mm-hmm. we've seen that a version of that in Britain with the, the grooming gangs. I saw there's one report that South Yorkshire police had not reported the ethnicity of 67% of the cases, thousands of cases, or thousands of girls, rather, because they were worried about it coming across as racist because the majority of the grooming gangs are of Pakistani origin. And so that's a problem we have here as well. But take us back to Egypt then. So you're 18, you're in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Um, Your mother's sent you there to...
1: Yeah, well, I was 17 when I was sent there, but I was 18... when I was able to get out between 18 and 19. And so, like I say, you know, my relationship with my mom had deteriorated so much because for so many years, she had just been trying to get me to submit, which is the definition of the word Islam. And although sometimes I would submit for short periods of time, I would get back up again. Mm -hmm. And she was getting really frustrated with me. And so she... As she told me, she chose a man for me who was strong enough to control me. And so that's why she chose a terrorist. And it's important to note here that, yes, he's a terrorist, but from my mom's perspective is he was also an incredibly good Muslim. Mm. So he's just a good man. She thought he was like, following the example of the prophet better than any man she'd ever met. And so she thought he would be strong enough, both physically, the fact that he's a terrorist and also with like how pious he was and how good of a person he was. So that would keep me controlled finally. Mm -hmm. And it worked. He had me completely covered in black from head to toe, couldn't even have my eyes out. That's if I left the house anyway. He had papered the windows in the house just in case the curtain would move and somebody would see me. So he covered all of the windows in paper. I got pregnant pretty soon after because in Islam, a woman is not allowed to say no to her husband. And... So I was really only leaving the house once a month to go to my prenatal visits to the doctor. Other than that, I never left the house. And once I had my daughter, that's when that's when everything for me changed because I felt like so much intense love for her and really wanted to support her and to have her be happy and to never know sadness and protect her. And... I never wanted her to live the life that I had lived, you know, the life that I was always trying to push myself out of. Now I have this beautiful little girl, and I'm going to condemn her to that life if if I don't get us out. Hmm. You know, you have these thoughts, but at the same time, you are a completely demoralized, completely dehumanized young girl with a high school education and no support system whatsoever. And so even though I had these thoughts, I didn't have the courage to do anything about getting myself out and you know one of the moments that I remember feeling like I have to do no matter what it is I have to get my daughter out of this environment was when she was just a baby and he leaned in and asked me when I was like when was I gonna clean her and I said what do you mean clean her she just had a bath he's like no when are you gonna get her fixed And I was like, I don't, I don't understand what you mean. And then my mom says, Oh no, no, no! When she's five or six years old, we'll take her to Egypt and we'll get that done. And that's when I realized what they were talking about. And uh, as any parent will know, when you're, you know, you have your baby in your arms, and you would do absolutely anything to protect this baby from harm. And these two people are in the room talking about taking her to Egypt to get her cut with razor blades, you know? So that was the moment I knew I had to, I had to get her out. I had to get myself out and it's all in the book, but obviously wasn't a, it wasn't an easy thing to do. And honestly, I'm very grateful that I was able to get out in my Interview with Ion Hersielli, who I know you've been on her podcast as well, like she talks about how the fact that we are alive today, the fact that we got free, and we're, you know, speaking about this publicly is truly a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. You know, if not for the flap of a butterfly's wing, at some point, this, you know, I would have been in Peshawar with 10 children with a terrorist husband, you know, mm-hmm. but luckily... My daughter and I got out, and he is in prison in Egypt.
0: So, mm. well, Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, I have read the book, and as I said earlier, I think you're an astonishingly brave woman. The subtitle of the book is How Western Liberals Empower a Radical Islam, and I think you were hinting at this earlier in the conversation as to the, the third problem of free speech in Islam is the use of Islamophobia to shut down. We didn't quite get there. I misrepresent what you were about to say about how Islamophobia as a term is used to shut down speech on the difficult issues within Islam. So, how do Western liberals empower radical Islam?
1: Well, I think even if we go back to your example of that Lady of Fatima movie, that's another perfect example. I give so many examples in my book, and unfortunately, new examples are being you know, brought to light every single day. But for the, the cinemas to capitulate to the mobs of people that were demanding that they stop filming or that they stop showing this film, when they capitulate to this mob of bullies, it empowers them to continue. Every single time they win... They have such a huge morale boost and they will truly say things like, you see, you see how we, even the big, powerful West, the big, powerful, great Britain, you see how we can bring them to their knees because we have a law behind us. That's why. So this is the kind of rhetoric you would have heard after 9-11. This is the kind of, after Salman Rushdie was, was stabbed, you know, the worst possible thing we can do is empower them by capitulating to their demands. So one of the best responses to this was in France. So you'll remember the teacher, Samuel Petit, who was beheaded as he was walking home to his wife and child after school one day, beheaded because he showed a picture of Muhammad, a cartoon of Muhammad in his class because he was discussing free speech Mm -hmm. with his students. After that happened, there were quite a few cities around France that took those cartoons and they projected them on buildings. And I thought that was the most perfect response. Mm -hmm. If they try to silence you, this is actually a Salman Rushdie has a quote where he says, if they try to silence you, sing louder. Mm And that's what we should have done. That's what we should do. Oh, are you upset about this movie being shown in this cinema? Okay, well, watch this. We're going to show it in even more cinemas. You're going to have to go around and protest in front of every single one of them. You cannot, you cannot capitulate to bullies. All they will do is just demand more and more and more and more and more until everything is as they want it to be. What they want is the exact opposite of what we want. So I, like I mentioned before, there's no such thing as freedom of expression in Islam. There's no such thing as, as freedom of speech. So that's what they're hoping. That's their end goal. Mm. And so every time we capitulate and we allow them to get their way with silencing us, whether it's with the word Islamophobia or whether it's getting movies taken down or whether it's people unwilling to to share the you know cartoons of charlie abdo or of fleming rose or even just to even use our voices to criticize the grooming gangs for goodness mm. sake journalists and politicians were all losing their jobs over that every single time we do that we are empowering them more and more and more
0: well british listeners will be familiar with the batley grammar yes. teacher case and he has been well over a year now and like the French teacher he showed a picture I believe it was the same hebdo cartoon but I might be getting that wrong and he has been forced to go into hiding and he remains in hiding and terrified for his life mm-hmm. and there's not been much of a response of solidarity at all in a way it's you know a great shame but let's say someone who's listening doesn't really understand the Islamophobia example. One way I, I describe it is, is the difference between being, Islam is a set of ideas, but Muslims are people. So I would have a problem with people who are Muslim phobic, mm-hmm. but to criticize Islam isn't a problem. To someone who doesn't understand the problem of the word Islamophobia, how would you articulate it?
1: Well, it's exactly what you just said there. Like, it's a set of ideas. It's like communism. It's like Nazism. It's like any other set of ideas that somebody thinks that we should all be living. Hmm. So the fact that they're trying to stop people from criticizing a set of ideas, I mean, that's the most egregious, you know, it's it's against free speech, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> it's against free expression. So the point is that we should be able, and in fact, we should criticize sets of ideas. And the fact that people are trying to silence us from doing that, there there seems to be this role reversal going on where, you know, for me as a person who has denounced Islam, the religion says that I should be executed. I'm not allowed to criticize that. Mm. I'm not allowed to say anything about that. Mm. The religion says that women are less intelligent than men. The religion says that men should beat their wives if they fear that they might be disobedient or arrogant mm-hmm. i could go on and on and on about all of the horrible things that are in that religion and i should be able to criticize those things and i will criticize those things mm-hmm. and the people that are trying to silence me from criticizing those things are the same people with the same thought processes as the people that are you know attacking salman rushdie or or killing the the charlie hebdo cartoonist. Mm-hmm. but instead of using bullets or knives, they're using these this term, Islamophobia. It's just another way of scaring me into silence, where I'm going to be so afraid that somebody's going to call me a bigot, or someone's going to call me a racist, or somebody's going to call me an Islamophobe, that I'll just go silent. And people do that all the time. It does work. Hmm. It's a successful mechanism for silencing criticism. And what's very frustrating for me is that when people want to criticize i'm going to talk about christianity again so you may you may have you know some other criticisms <laughs> good, of me but you know you can criticize judaism you can criticize christianity you can criticize hinduism and then what do the people from those groups do they engage in conversation hmm. they engage in discourse and they say actually i think you misunderstood this is the situation or whatever it is like they they engage with you They don't try to behead you or burn down the building of where this criticism has come from or or whatever the situation may be, you know. So it's like Muslims are so unwilling to come to the table and have rational discourse like rational human beings. You either have the extremists that are coming out with their guns and knives or you have the Islamists that are coming forward with their Islamophobia, you know, basically, again, silencing the criticism and very, very few reform Muslims that we've mentioned before are willing to sit down and have these conversations. But again, to go back to the subtitle of my book, How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam, we're not hearing from those reform Muslims. Those aren't the people that we're, we're you know, we're not having them on, you know, the BBC or CNN or or whatever. We're not talking to them. We're not listening to what they have to say. Politicians don't care what they have to say because they are a minority within a minority, Mm -hmm. and they're more interested in the votes. What do most Muslims believe or think or, you know? And that, I think, is the real tragedy here. I think that we need to be Encouraging and empowering reform Muslims who, within their own religion, are trying to make changes. You know, like I said to you earlier, I don't necessarily agree with what they're doing and how they're doing it, but I do certainly support them. And I think that's what we need to be doing. We need to be supporting the progressive minded, you know, the feminists in the Muslim majority world. I think that we need to be supporting people like the Batley Grammar School teacher, for example. There should have been like this huge solidarity that would show, no, we are not going to be bullied. No, we are not going to capitulate to you. That's what we need to do. And you've got people all over the Muslim majority world that are trying to do this. But like I said, they're a tiny minority and they're within a society of people that want them dead. And so it's very difficult to hear their voices. So I feel like people that believe in Western values, people that believe in enlightenment values, people that believe in important concepts like freedom of speech and and freedom of expression, we should be linking hands with each other across the globe and supporting each other. But unfortunately, that's not what's happening. Instead, we're linking hands with terrorists in Afghanistan or you know murderers in Saudi Arabia and it's all you know just for political reasons.
0: I understand that in the publishing of your book Unveiled you faced great difficulty can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah so I had a great agent here in the UK and she sent my book out to many different publishers and they all came back with the same response. And that, you know, always had something to do with Salman Rushdie. Hmm. They said, we don't have the capacity to take on such a security threat. And so we're not interested in publishing this book. We think it's a great book. It's well-written. Um, we agree with, you know, a lot of things that she's saying, et cetera, et cetera, But we're not going to touch it with a 10-foot pole.
0: Because they were scared of the consequences. They were scared that they would face the wrath of those extremists.
1: Yes. Basically, like what I was saying early, they they weren't willing to stand up for their own values. Mm. They're not willing to to stand up against the bullies. They're not willing to, so just, to free speech. So one can only imagine
0: what books are not getting published. There's yeah. a, a British academic called, a very brilliant academic called Emma Webb, who described this recently in an interview on Andrew Dawes' show as internalization of Islamic Blasphemy Laws, mm. in, where, Beautiful. In, yeah, in, in effect now, Westerners, and this comes to the title of your book, how, how Western Liberals Are Empowering Radical Islam, is that because people are scared of a, a Rushdie-type response, yeah. and let, let's look at the publishing. They are now not publishing books, and it's winning. And, and that's a, quite a terrifying thought. And yeah. I, I wonder how many books are, we're not having the opportunity to read. But And, yeah, you did publish... You self-published
1: I did. I self-published because I got frustrated. I got tired of that response. And, you know, I was speaking to Sam Harris, who is somebody who I greatly admire and respect. And I told him, I'm done. I'm sick of this whole thing, you know. The West can just burn itself, Mm. you know, I'm over it. I've tried to say what I needed to say. Nobody wants to hear me. All they want to do is silence me and demonize me because it was not only coming from the Muslims, it's coming very strongly from the left as well. Mm. And so I felt like, you know, I'm over it. I'm not doing this anymore. And he sat on the phone with me for almost an hour, basically talking me off the ledge and saying, you know, you need to publish this book, you, you need to just self publish this book, you need to get it out there. And I didn't believe him, I didn't want to do it. But I trusted him enough that I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just do it. And it was essentially him and my, and my husband who made it happen because I was so demoralized at that point. Mm. And together they you know, created the cover art and they, just, they did everything and uh, got it published. And I was really, really, really pleased to see the responses mm. because it was like you said, there's so many people out there that are thinking and feeling these same things, but they can't say it. And the fact that I had written down what they felt were their internal thoughts, they felt so less alone and so validated. And so I was getting messages from all over the world from people telling me how much they relate to my story and and telling me their stories and saying that reading my story felt like reading their story. And you know it's obviously been that part of it has been really wonderful to mm. to connect with so many people across the globe but But, yeah, you know, I'm still getting messages every now and then from random people who haven't even read my book telling me what an Islamophobe I am, you know full-on American, born and raised, have nothing to do with Islam, have never known anything to do with Islam, mm. but they feel that they have the, the right to, to judge me and to demonize me, you know, the, the well, they arrogance. they do have the right
0: to do that. They I'm do, sure but you're, just you're, you're the agree,
1: arrogance but- of it, yeah. you know, just the arrogance of being so ignorant about something and then feeling that you need to silence people who are trying to share, express their opinions about it.
0: Mm-hmm. But you are you're sort of ignoring the hate and riding the wave of positivity and doing a lot of good. And, and I've seen that and, and perhaps you can tell me about uh, free hearts, free minds, your nonprofit
1: organization. Yeah, well that's actually a perfect segue because once my book I started publishing chapter by chapter on a blog online. And when I was started to do that, I started to get inundated with messages from people all around the world who couldn't speak to their friends and family about what they were thinking and feeling, but they knew that they could share with me because I had already publicly expressed, you know, my opinions. And so they were all writing to me and telling me their stories and sharing their situations with me. I mean, I had women from Saudi Arabia calling me from inside of like, prisons It's like this place where women who don't submit are thrown. I had this woman from Somalia calling me where her family members had found out that she didn't believe in Islam anymore, and they had alerted Boko Haram, which are a terrorist group, and she had three days to, to recant and to say that she was a Muslim again before they were going to execute her. Just the most atrocious things, and people are reaching out to me and I'm like, I'm just a woman writing a blog. <laughs> like, I don't have the power. I don't have a magic wand. I, of course, I would do anything that I can to support anybody that I can. But I did not have the capacity to do so. And it broke me. I ended up falling in the darkest place I'd ever fallen in in my life. And I was suicidal. I was agoraphobic. I was having panic attacks. It was it was so difficult. And... That's when I came to the thought of developing this organization, Free Hearts, Free Minds, which offers the support that these people need, but it's through professionals, not me, because I was not capable of doing it. I was already raw anyway, because I was in the middle of writing my book, which brought up all sorts of things that I had buried for decades and that I never wanted to look at. And suddenly I was trying to examine them to write it into this book. So I was already in a really fragile state. So what I do with Free Hearts, Free Minds is basically people know that they can trust me. And so they contact me looking for support. And then I can, at that point, refer them to therapists who can support them to overcome their religious trauma. And so we have uh, three therapists that work with us. Aisha, Jessica, and Joanna, and I could not be more grateful and more proud of the work that we do. We have the most amazing team of people, and we have a really, really, you know, just, it's like the light in a dark tunnel. It's eight sessions of group support where they not only have an opportunity to work through their religious trauma but they have an opportunity to find community again Mm. which is what you lose when you're ostracized and excommunicated and fearing for your life so yeah so i'm incredibly proud of my organization free hearts free minds and it allows me to feel like i'm doing something positive in the tsunami of negatives that are constantly unfolding
0: you certainly are that's absolutely wonderful and, and very inspiring to hear yasmin Mohammed. thank you so much for sharing your story and speaking with me today it's been fascinating
1: thank you so much it was my pleasure